you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 21. I wanted to do something different this morning with it being New Year's Day. We finished up our Christmas series last week, walking through Luke 2. And next week, we'll pick back up in Acts 20. But today, I wanted to preach a stand-alone sermon, partly because, again, this is New Year's Day, and I imagined that some of our congregation might be out of town or in bed after watching the clock strike midnight and shooting a bunch of fireworks. And I didn't want anyone to miss what's coming in Acts 20. Paul is about to give his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, and it's one of the most touching passages in the book. So I wanted as many present as possible. So what do you do on New Year's Day? Well... Not only is this New Year's Day, I know that this is also the first day of a new diet or a new exercise routine. It's a day that kicks off new goals and resolutions. Maybe you've drawn a line in the sand and you've said, this habit will not follow me into the new year. Many of you have begun uh, a new Bible reading plan and you're in... Genesis 1 today. We've got new planners and calendars that we're breaking in and filling up. Whatever it is for you, you can summarize this day and what you hope to, what this hope, what you hope this year will be. You could summarize it with the scriptural language of the old has passed away, the new has come. We feel that today. The old has passed away and the new has come. And with that in mind, I wanted to take this one sermon and remind you of the new work that the Lord has promised to do. You know, we have a New Year's Day every year. It comes again and again And again, but all of history is moving towards one day, one final day when all things will be made new. Our New Year's Day might mean new calendars, new routines, new diets, but this last day means a new heaven And a new earth. And a sinless existence for every believer living in and enjoying the presence of God forever. So I'm going to read Revelation 21, 1 through 8 for context. But the scope of this sermon really is all of Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to look at the characteristics of this final new day. But first, let's... Ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Father God, as we open your word, we ask that you would speak. We remember that your word 
is living and active. And that the preaching of it is a means of grace that strengthens our faith and nourishes our hearts. We ask that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 21, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed Away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. I'm going to point out five characteristics of this new day. And the first of those being a new Eden. There is a desire within all of us to return to the garden. We want to go back to that place of innocence and peace, that place where we can find full satisfaction and purpose in life. This isn't unique to Christians. Every human from every worldview has some idea of what utopia would look like. As image bearers of God, every one of us has this Nostalgia, this sentimental longing for Eden or an Eden-type place. And even though none of us have ever been there, none of us have ever experienced this place ourselves, yet the desire is within all of us. This passage of Scripture describing the new heavens and earth is that. It is a return to a place of perfection. It's getting back to the garden. And we see, importantly, that it only happens by the power and will of God 
Almighty. No single human can accomplish this. No group of humans, no nation, no coalition of nations can bring heaven on earth. This is something that only God can do. And in Revelation 21, we're told that John sees the new Jerusalem, this perfect city, this place of eternal blessedness and peace and happiness. And John sees it coming down from heaven. And he hears a voice of the one who is sitting on the throne of heaven saying, Behold, I am making all things new. This is something that only he can do. Don't these first two chapters of the Bible, I'm sorry, don't these last two chapters of the Bible remind us of the first two? You know, the the Bible is ending in the same place where it began. We see mentions of heaven and earth, the sea, a beautiful marriage ceremony, God dwelling with man, the mention of light and sun and moon, a river, a tree of life, fruit. All important images in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Revelation 21 and 22. It's like a movie or a book that is ending in the same place where it began. I'm sure you've seen this in a movie before. The story begins in someone's hometown and they leave and they go on all these adventures and experience times of danger and personal growth and then in the very end they find their way back home. And isn't that what we have in Revelation 21 and 22? A return back to where it all began. The only difference being, and this is important, What we have here in the last two chapters of the Bible is not simply a return to Eden. It's a return to a newer and better Eden. So how is what we have here newer and better than what we see in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, I have a list for you. In Genesis, we see paradise lost. In Revelation, we see paradise restored. In Genesis, we read of a river running through the garden. But in Revelation, the river flows directly from the throne of God. In Genesis, we're told that the tree of life was in the center of the garden. But in Revelation, in the middle of the holy city, there is a forest planted on both sides of the river. In Genesis, we're told that that God set the sun and moon and stars in the heavens to give the people light by day and light by night. But in Revelation, we read that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In Genesis 3, we encounter a serpent. The serpent, the cunning and powerful devil. But in Revelation, we read that the devil was bound and hurled into the lake of fire, never to tempt the people of God again. 
In Genesis, we see that heartbreaking scene of man and woman fleeing from God's presence, trying to hide in their shame. But in Revelation, we see a marriage ceremony and a bride who is washed and cleansed and made pure and holy, who enters into intimate communion with God. Lastly, in Genesis, we see the promise of a redeemer. And in Revelation, we see the eternal reign of that Redeemer. Our hope is not simply to get back to Eden. Our hope is that we will dwell forever in a new Eden, a better Eden, which will be heaven on earth. And so as you... Start your Bible reading plans and you read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Remember that a newer and better Eden is coming. (coughs) Second thing I want you to see about this new day is the curse reversed. There is something wrong with this world. I think everyone can agree With that, we look around and we think things should not be this way. Something somewhere has gone terribly wrong. And our gracious God has provided an explanation of why things are the way they are. In Scripture, we read that the disobedience of our first parents brought sin into the world. And ever since then, Not only have we inherited that sin, but we have also participated in the act of sinning. And our sin isn't containable. That's the lie we tell ourselves. We say, well, this this isn't going to hurt anyone else. It's not going to affect anyone else. This is just me. We know better than that. You can't contain sin. It touches Everything around us and everyone around us. It's a curse. And as a curse, it brought death into the world. Sin brought about violence and hatred, suffering and pain, sickness and deformity, disease, weariness and frustration. Sin brought pain and strife into our closest relationships. Those with parents and children and spouses. Sin has caused our work and labor to be frustrating and difficult and oftentimes fruitless. As a curse, it has also marred creation. Romans 8 tells us that creation was unwillingly subjected to futility and groans wanting to be set free from its bondage to corruption. This curse covers everything. But what do we see in this passage? We see the curse reversed. We see everything that is bad being undone. Everything throughout the entirety of creation healed and restored. Dissatisfaction will be forever removed. Thirst will be quenched, free of charge. 
Nations will be healed and reconciled with one another. People will live together in harmony. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed. We hear the voice from the throne saying, Every tear will be wiped from your eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning. These former things have passed away. All of the consequences of sin will be overcome and made as if they had never happened in the first place. And if you don't believe me, we read in Isaiah, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. We read this morning in verse 1 that the sea was no more. Now, I, I doubt this means that there won't be any large bodies of water in the new heavens and new earth. Maybe so. But the sea in Scripture was always a threat. It was hostile. And think of the imagery we've seen earlier in, in Revelation. The beast comes up out of the sea to oppose Christ. The sea was a place of chaos and danger. And understanding this adds a lot of weight to what Christ is doing when he calms the storm. But in the new heavens and new earth, the sea is no more. Danger and storms will fade and all will be at peace. There will also be an end of sin. We will not be able to sin. In verse 8 of what we just read, we see a very serious warning It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I know as I read that, some of you might have been filled with pride because you say, oh, that's not me. Some of you may feel despair or some discomfort with that passage. Thinking that some of those descriptors sound a little too familiar. Now, I want to remind you that there is no one in this church who could say, there has never been a time in my life when I was guilty of something on that list. All of us, myself included, are guilty. And yet we don't fear the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you know why? As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the difference. We all deserve to die the second death. But there is forgiveness in Christ. And there is mercy and grace to all who would receive him. 
to all who would cry out and trust in him. We're told he offers the water of life without payment. We see this in the curse being reversed. Something else before I go on to my next point. We need to remember that the reversal of the curse began before Revelation 21. The the truth is that the curse began to roll back at the very moment Jesus Christ died on the cross. Which is why we speak of that day as Good Friday. C.S. Lewis illustrates this beautifully in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of the children, named Edmund, is indicted by the white witch for being a traitor. And the witch is prosecuting her case against Edmund. And she speaks to Aslan. And she cites the deep magic. And she says, you know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey. And that for every treachery, I have a right to kill. You all remember this moment? Edmund is guilty. Blood had been shed. He had to die. But what happens is that the witch and the lion come to an agreement. Aslan would take the boy's place. He would willingly go and die instead. He would be sacrificed on the stone table and Edmund would go free. And of course the witch jumps at this opportunity because she wants more than anything to get rid of the lion. So she agrees. And Aslan goes to the stone table. And he's bound with ropes. And he is surrounded by enemies. And he's killed. And it was a dark, terribly sad night for the two girls who laid beside Aslan's dead body. But then something wonderful happens. Just as the sky begins to lighten with the coming of the day, there's a great crack. And the stone table is broken in two. And there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. And both girls flung themselves on him and covered him with kisses. And they said, what does this all mean? Remember what Aslan said? He said, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would begin to start working backwards. Praise God, that is exactly what happened on the cross. 
a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed as a substitute in place of sinners. And once that happened, the power of the enemy was broken and death itself started working backward. With the end result being what we see here in the last two chapters of Revelation. Everlasting life. At the cross, the curse of death began to work backward and the new heavens and new earth is the culmination of the work of Christ on the cross. The curse fully and forever reversed. We sang about this last week. Do you remember? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. We've got the new Eden, the curse reversed. Third thing I want to point out is the perfect ending. We may ask the perfect ending of what? The plan of God. In the last two chapters of Scripture, we see the utter completion of everything God has planned and worked towards. We see the purpose for which the heavens and the earth were created. The purpose for which Jesus Christ took on flesh and died on a cross and rose from the grave. It reaches its perfect ending here. All of God's providence, all of His predestinating purposes reach their perfect ending. All work is complete. All promises are kept. All prophecies fulfilled. All enemies defeated. And all his people gathered and saved. On this last new day, everything arrives at this perfect conclusion. And we have an example of this in Revelation 21 verse 2. We're told of a bride. Who is this bride? It's the church. It's the full number of every redeemed sinner saved by the grace of God. You know, one of the great privileges of being a minister is being the one front and center uh, in a marriage. I I tell people that I always have the best seat in the house um, during a marriage. They're so much fun to officiate. And I've only, I think I've only officiated three marriages, but I've been in and been to a lot. And I can't remember one where the bride didn't look perfect. On wedding day, anticipation mounts. Everyone gathers together. They take their seats. They watch the parents and grandparents walk in. They watch the bridesmaids and the groomsmen come in. And then what happens? A new song begins. And the doors open. Everyone stands up and looks at the bride. 
and she looks perfect. The hair, the dress, the veil, the bouquet. Months of planning and preparation and work all culminate in this glorious moment as the beautiful bride walks down the aisle toward her groom. As we picture that in our mind, multiply that beauty and the joy of that moment by, I don't know, a billion? That's a picture of what we have here. The marriage ceremony of all marriage ceremonies. We see the entirety of the church from first to last. Everyone gathered together. No one is lost. All have been made perfectly holy and pure without spot and wrinkle. And they are presented to the one who loves them the most. It's the perfect ending. It's why Jesus was born in a manger. It's why he lived a sinless life. It's why he took the beating and the scorn and bled and died. All so that he could stand at the end of the aisle and see his bride. Fourth thing I want you to see concerning this new day. And this is probably the most important. And it's the centrality of Jesus Christ. You know, in thinking about the new heavens and earth, it's so easy to think about ourselves. How will it be for us? What will we experience? We become central in our minds. But what we must remember is that in the city of God, Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. When you look at these last two chapters, you'll see this. He is the husband. He's the voice that speaks. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the living water. He's the lamb. He's the light by which we behold all things. It's his name that is written on our foreheads. He is the best and most beautiful thing in this entire place. The heavenly city with its jewels and streets of gold and gates of pearl, all of it is just a mirror reflecting the radiance and glory of Christ. He is the highlight and the greatest part of this new creation. In Revelation 22.4, we're told, they will see his face. Don't over-spiritualize those words. Not only will we feel his presence and see everything in light of his glory, but we will see him bodily. We will behold the physical body of Christ. Thomas Boston talks about this. He says, we will see Jesus Christ with our bodily eyes because he will never lay aside his human nature. We shall see with our eyes the very body born of Mary at Bethlehem and crucified at Jerusalem between two thieves. We will see the blessed head that was crowned with thorns, the face that was spit upon, the hands and feet that were nailed to the cross. We will see them all shining with inconceivable glory. There are lots of happy-making sights we experience 
here and now. I think one of those for me is seeing my youngest girl run and her hair just bounce as she runs. All of those happy-making sights point ahead to the greatest of all, which will be seeing the Lord Jesus in person. (coughs) Seeing his hands and head and feet all scarred because of his great love for us. Seeing his outstretched arms to receive and welcome us home. And then we will fully understand Psalm 1611, which says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fifth and final characteristic of this new day is its eternality. Revelation 22.5, we read, they will reign forever and ever. You know, in this present life, we have a saying, all good things come to an end. We go through life and have moments that are sweet and wonderful, where, the, where, where things just for a moment seem perfect. Maybe you've had some of those Moments here in the last week, gathering with family to celebrate Christmas. But then what happens? The moment passes, reality sets in, people go home, and the good things, the good times come to an end. Hear me. The people of God will never know that feeling. The saying, all good things must come to an end, does not describe life in the new heavens and new earth. The blessings of God will be ours forever and ever, completely uninterrupted for all eternity. Our Lord's plan ends with heaven coming to earth and with Him dwelling with us forever. Not just for a thousand years, not just for 10,000 years, but forever. At the end of your earthly life, you may be burdened with some regret, missed opportunities, things you wish you would have done, things you wanted to accomplish but never did, people you wish you could have spent more time with, Places you're sorry you never traveled to. Hear me. The best is yet to come. Any missed opportunities will be replaced by billions of newer and better opportunities. The life everlasting. What do we mean when we say life everlasting? It's living forever as physical beings in a redeemed physical world. And what's waiting for us is an eternity of worship and friendship and love and discovery and work and play, forever living with our God and one another. So on this New Year's Day, January 1st, 2023,
I want all of you to remember the Christian's great hope. Your Savior and King has gone ahead to prepare a place for you. When it's your time, He will call you home. And when this new day comes, when the city of God descends and heaven comes to earth, you will finally be home. In a home that is strangely familiar, yet gloriously different. And from that moment on, there will no longer be fear or sadness or crying or pain. It will never storm It will never get too cold. The lights will never go out. We will be together with loved ones, together with Christ, in a perfect place forever and ever. Because Jesus Christ reigns. And he is making all things new. Let's pray. Father, on this first Lord's Day of 2023, would you fill our hearts with the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Would we remember that he is making all things new? And though we may fail in our resolutions, and abandon new habits or fall off the wagon or get behind with our reading, the same is not true of your son. He will never fail. He will never turn aside. He will never forsake his plan and his people. Father, would you cause us to trust him more and more. We ask all this in his name. Amen.